Paul Wilkes is a journalist and author, a Catholic layperson who for many years has been fascinated by monks and monasteries, but with a twist. He was interested in the spirituality that they live behind those walls, but what it would look like to bring it outside of those walls. In fact, he wrote a book called Outside the Walls in which he imagined taking that spirituality of chanting psalms and praying and silence and bringing it into the so-called real world. The image that he came up with was that of like building a boat. He imagined that he would go inside the monastery and he would work on this imaginary boat and then he would sail it out into the real world hoping of course that it wouldn't take in water. And so he built it plank by plank and covered it with pitch and pushed off from the shore only to find out it doesn't work. <laughs> the time behind walls in a monastery was quiet and reflective and slow paced but the moment he drove out of there, it was, well, you know, the hecticness of traffic and life and that kind of thing. It's a really good question for all of us, even if we've never been in a monastery, and that is how do we take the spirituality and the spiritual experience of a Sunday morning in here out into the real world, into corporate America, as they say? I mean, how many of us have on New Year's made a resolution that this year we would grow closer to God only to see that fizzle a little bit by, what, President's Day, if not sooner? In the early centuries of the Christian movement, Christians kind of lived, well, in two phases. At one point, Christianity was illegal in the Roman Empire, and so their spirituality went underground, literally. They lived normal lives, out in the world and then on Sunday underground. But when Christianity was made legal, Christians then had to figure out how to live what one scholar calls hyphenated lives. Yeah, on Sunday they would sing hymns to Christ, but on other days of the week they were at the races and the Hippodrome where everything about that event was paying homage to the Roman gods. They had to figure out how to live in the so-called real world and be spiritual at the same time. Some people are surprised to discover that the gospel writers themselves struggled with this very thing. Contrary to popular opinion, we don't know who wrote any of the four gospels. Those are names that we have given them, but we don't know who wrote them. And contrary to popular opinion, none of the gospel writers knew Jesus in the flesh. They lived at least a generation or more later. And in John's case, we call him John, 70 years later. He could have hung his head and said, man, I was born at the wrong time. I mean, I only missed it by this much. I could have walked the earth with Jesus, walked the streets of Jerusalem with Jesus. But no, here I am, generation or so later. No, no. But that's not what he does. In fact, his strategy really comes out in his ending. Or maybe I should say his endings, plural. None of the gospel writers except John do this, but he has two endings. So we read in chapter 21. In chapter 20, he does what all the gospel writers do. He tells the story of the resurrection, which is how gospels end, right? Jesus is raised from the dead, and then he gets to the end, and he says, and Jesus did 
many other signs and so forth in the presence of his disciples. And I don't know, maybe when he gets through, he puts a period, puts the pen down, maybe his hands cramped. I mean, how long does it take to write a gospel? stretches. All he has left to do now is press the send button. Send off the email to his publicist, his agent. The Gospel of John is done. Put it in the mail. But he does something that none of the others do. He sits back down at the desk, picks up his pen, and writes one more chapter. It's an epilogue, and when he gets to the end of it, he puts down one more ending, the one we read. And you heard it. I suppose if you took everything Jesus did and wrote it down, all the books in the world could not contain it. That, by the way, is how you know the author of this gospel was a minister. He exaggerates a little bit. But the exaggeration is part of the plan. The exaggeration is that Jesus continued to do things. If the first ending is about what Jesus did in the presence of those who knew him on earth, the second ending is about John's readers and therefore, by extension, about us. But here's the irony. A gospel that goes out of its way to brag about all that Jesus did, I mean, book after book after book, is full of stories of people who missed it or almost missed it. So let me explain. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell stories of Jesus performing miracles, and that's the word they use, miracles. And they even say they were accompanied with power. You, you can't miss that. Somebody walks on water, that, that's, that's pretty impressive. You, you just can't miss it. But in John, he doesn't call them miracles. John calls them signs. Signs. And you can miss a sign. I mean, haven't you had somebody tell you give you directions and say, oh, trust me, you can't miss it, there's a sign. Uh-huh, right. I sometimes can't even find the salad dressing, and it's in the refrigerator. If I can't find the salad dressing in the refrigerator, it's really possible to miss a sign from God. So, for instance, Jesus goes to a wedding. This is the first sign in the Gospel of John. It's in the little village of Cana. The folks are enjoying it, and then they run out of wine. That's not a good thing. Not then, not now. You're not supposed to run out of wine. But there's 120 gallons of water there, and Jesus miraculously turns it into wine, and not three-buck chuck. This is good stuff. The New Testament says it is the best wine. But here's the punchline. And the last, the last sentence says... And his disciples believed in him. Wait, wait, what? What, what, what? what about the others? What about all the other people? They were about to have to start drinking water instead of wine. They don't notice this, that it's really good. I mean, and what about the parents of the bride? How could they not notice? It's possible in the Gospel of John for something big to happen and people miss it. Later in chapter 9, Jesus heals a man who has been blind from birth. He has never seen a thing. Heals the man. It's miraculous, of course, right? But the rest of the chapter, and it's a long chapter, is about everybody else in the story of the man born blind is blind, except the man born blind. You, you, you hear what I'm saying? In other words, the blind man is made to see, but everybody else on stage, they're not 
physically blind, they're spiritually blind. They can't see what's going on. How is it that seeing people don't see signs? But here's my favorite. Later in the Gospel of John, Jesus prays to God aloud, says, make your glory known. And God speaks back, audibly speaks. I will make my glory known. And everybody hears it except, here's what John writes. Some people said, I think I, I think I heard thunder. Yeah, well, we could use the rain. Yeah, I know, it's been dry. Man, hot too. Yeah, I think we're going to get some rain. We need the rain. The voice of God speaks and all people can do is talk about the weather. Some said it thundered. It makes me wonder about all those times we had that little inane conversation with somebody about the weather as if we were just killing time. I wonder if that's a sign of how we sometimes miss the signs. I mean, could all our talk, small talk about the weather mean some kind of spiritual poverty? Kathleen Norris grew up Protestant, married a lapsed Catholic, and when they were dating, he invited her, maybe on the first date, to go to a wedding. And this was not your normal Protestant wedding. This was one of those good old-fashioned Roman Catholic weddings where you've got to have stamina. It lasts a long time. And she was kind of tuning it in and out most of the time. But near the end, the priest at the table was cleaning up after communion, straightening the things up, and, and she blurted it out. She said, oh my gosh, the priest is doing the dishes. And her boyfriend to be husband looked at her like oh my god you're a nutcase right but for her this was a religious experience it was actually a religious insight on two levels one she realized that even the religious life that which happens in the life of a church it's got its mundane stuff you know somebody had to cut bread somebody had to put the juice in those little cups i mean this doesn't all happen by magic right there are mundane things even in the spiritual life. But the other thing she realized was you could know God in the mundane. You could be doing the laundry and have an awareness of the presence of God. So most of us have heard before that you can experience God anywhere, anytime, at any place. And that is true. But theologians say there are some places where it's more likely they call them thin places, where the boundary between heaven and earth is so thin, it's more likely to happen. This is a thin place. That's why we gather here. This is a thin place. Here's the way I think of it. If God can be experienced anywhere, it's like the divine Wi-Fi signal. You can get this signal anywhere, but some of them are hot spots. There are some places where you get more bars this is one of them. But what about when we're not in this thin place? How do we experience God and stay connected the other days of the week and the other places, some of which are very thick? You could come up with your own list. I, I, I jotted a few things down, but I know you could come up with more. I thought about reading the Bible which is exactly what you'd expect an exaggerating minister to say, right? Read your Bible. But, but don't think of it as a contest where, you know, you have to, I'm going to read my Bible through in a year. 
It's great, but the idea is it's not a race. The idea is to let it get inside you. What if you just took and opened a Bible and read one verse, and before you walked out the door in the morning, and you just mulled it over for a day or two, and then you can pick another verse. You don't have to do fast. You're not, it's not Guinness Book of World Records. I think besides the good book, a good book is always in order. I could give you a bibliography, if you want, of spiritual writers. I mean, Kathleen Norris and Paul Wilkes are a good start. But sometimes reading a really good book can bring us closer to God. The scholars of spirituality always say, you know, there's, there's two ways to think about this. One is, you could be still. You could practice the art of stillness. Which means, like, not always picking up your smartphone. Or, on the other end of the spectrum, you could say, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve. I'm going to donate my time. I'm going to volunteer. I'm going to go read books to inner city kids as part of a literacy program. I had a friend who did that, and the stories he told, I mean, it was, they were God moments. You could even find God watching the news. I, I don't know, you don't probably think of it that way. But when you hear a story about a duck boat, it can be a call to prayer. Or migrants at a border, it can be a call to prayer. So you can come up with your own list. I mean, you can think about, how do I stay connected? All of that was on my mind before Monday, but then something happened on Monday. On Monday, I went to grab a cup of soup at the new Whole Foods over by UMKC, sit out on the patio under an umbrella, enjoy a little bit of the the weather, and there were these two guys on a laptop on a Skype call with a woman in corporate. I don't know where she was, but there they were, and everybody could hear it. Now, normally, I would have just gotten up because there was going to be no peace and quiet, but I kind of thought, this will be an interesting experiment. I want to hear what their life is like. This will sound very familiar to many of you. They talked about emails. They talked about phone calls needing to be made, PowerPoints, other presentations, sales strategies. You know, the list, the list, it goes on and on. You may feel Monday creeping up on you even as I speak. But then it hit me. I don't know if they were church-going people, but if they were, I wondered how much of Sunday's experience was still lingering with them. How does one stay connected to God when digging out of a hundred emails? Maybe another way to think of it is, what is the expiration date on what happens here this morning? How, how long is this good for? What if this is what Sunday is like? What will, what will Thursday look like? 